I trust you have your Bible with you tonight and uh, invite you to turn with me uh, in the Old Testament, not first of all to the book of Ruth, but we are going to take a look at a couple other passages uh, before that. Uh, you can turn to Psalm 136 if you want to, to uh, get ready for us to read that. As we begin tonight, let's join our hearts together and ask for God's direction and instruction. Our Father and our God, I thank you this night that you have put before us the study of the Word of God. You have encouraged us, in fact, commanded us to desire the sincere milk of the Word as newborn babes. And I thank you for those that are here tonight with the appetite to learn the Word. Thank you for those that have been reading and studying in the book of Ruth and meditating and contemplating its truths and its principles, its examples, and most of all, how it points to Christ. Father, I pray tonight that you would open our hearts with understanding, give us grasp of events that were long ago in a culture very different from our own, Help us to turn back in time to understand and to grasp and appreciate all that you have done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of themes in the book of Ruth which we have mentioned. And uh, as tonight is our fourth and last uh, time together in the book of Ruth, I just want to recap what they are and state them so that if you did not happen to get them along the way, uh, you have at least heard them this time. These are not the only themes in the book of Ruth, but these are some of the important theological and uh, historical things. First of all, the book of Ruth is a beautiful display of the providence of God at work in the lives of individuals and in the life of national Israel. It not only uh, affected a family, but it is a book that touched the entire nation. Secondly, the book demonstrates the steadfast love and covenant loyalty of Jehovah to his people whom he has chosen for himself. And we looked last time at that concept of steadfast love, the mercy, the loving kindness of the Lord. And that is what is mentioned in Psalm 136 in every verse. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And we could go on down through. He traces the history of God's work on behalf of Israel. God is always faithful to his covenant. And that is a theme in the book of Ruth. God was faithful to his people, even in light of the fact that Elimelech and Naomi were not faithful. They left the land of the covenant. And uh, it, it, that's my perspective on the book, that they have, they're a picture of those who have left the land and left the covenant instead of turning and repenting and asking God uh, to uh, reveal their sin so they as a people could repent and see the solution to the famine, which would be God's blessing upon them. But God is faithful through all of that. The third thing, and this is what we're going to spend more of our time on tonight, is that this book reveals a magnificent picture of the glorious Redeemer, the ultimate Redeemer who would come and buy back Israel out of her spiritual destitution and bring her back into the place of covenant blessing. We're going to see a man who was a kinsman, a relative who had the ability to help someone and buy them out of a problem, pay the, the price that was needed, 
But that is, it is a picture of Jehovah in his redemption of Israel, and it's a picture of Christ in his redemption, both of Israel and of us. So we're going to look at that. Some other things that are significant in the book, um, it is uh, the inclusion of women as significant characters in a piece of literature in the ancient world was very rare. It did happen, but it was very rare. And it elevates the position of women in God's um, work, in God's history, in the lineage of David, and in the history of Israel. It also is a book that shows us a glimpse of God, including the Gentiles, in the scope of his grace and mercy. There are a few places in the Old Testament where we see Gentiles being brought in. And this is one of those delightful places. And then, of course, this book is very important because it uh, was given partly to trace the lineage of our Messiah back to the right tribe, the tribe of Judah, through the right king, and that was David. And so those are some of the overall highlights and, and purposes and significances of the book. If you would flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and I want us to uh, go right into this concept of the kinsman who had the capability of redeeming someone out of trouble. Uh, the people would once in a while get themselves in a jam. Do you understand that? You ever get yourself in a jam? You ever have to live with the consequences of your own stupid choices? Okay, enough said, I guess. <clears throat> That's what happened to Naomi and Ruth, or to Naomi, uh, anyway, in this book. Well, the background, part of the background for this is Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law of what was called leveret marriage, the Levi uh, uh, is the, the, the word for the tribe that was to, the priestly tribe. But anyway, verse 5, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel, he is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders. Now notice this. Pull his sandal off of his foot and spit in his face. Now can you imagine that in the Eastern world? A woman doing that to a man? And she shall declare... Thus it is to be done with, to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. For the rest of his life, he will be shamed because he did not honor his dead brother by being willing to marry the widow and raise up a son in his brother's name. The importance of this was, of course, involved with the inheritance of the land through the generations. It wasn't just so that somebody's name would be repeated or something. There was a great importance in the inheritance of the land within 
the tribes. So when the oldest brother or an older brother died, then the next oldest brother, who was, I believe, who was not yet married, I don't think this was a requirement that if the next younger brother was already married that he would have to take a second wife. This is the next younger brother who would be unmarried, would uh, marry the widow, and the first son to be born to that marriage would take the name and receive the inheritance of the deceased. Now, it's interesting when you read the book of Ruth that Ruth did not, uh, did not uh, exercise that right to call the near kinsman to the gate and have him shamed and spit in his face. Now, that may be because she was a Moabite. I don't know. It may be because she was gracious. Or it may be that they were not observing some of these things uh, several hundred years uh, later on. Uh, this, this was a Jewish custom and law that was practiced. It was uh, so well known that even in the time of Christ, you remember the Sadducees came to Christ and gave him the theoretical situation. A brother dies without a son, and so the second brother marries him, and then the, he dies, and the third brother, and all the way down to the seventh brother. And their argument was, this is ridiculous. There must not be resurrection, because how could one woman have seven husbands in heaven? So there must not be a resurrection. And, of course, Christ corrected their thinking. You're missing the whole point. There's neither marriage nor given in marriage in heaven. And uh, that, that is an earthly relationship, not in any evil sense. It's simply for here on earth while we are here in this life. And so this was, this was a custom that went on for a long time. Naomi even referred to it. If you want to go uh, for a minute to the book of Ruth in chapter 1. In verse 10 of chapter 1, when she is telling her daughter-in-laws to return to their parents' homes, uh, they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said in verse 11, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? That's what she's referring to, the whole uh, brother marrying the widow to raise up a son. Verse 12, Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She said, no, this whole idea that there's, there's any hope for uh, you know, a marriage inside the family, it's, it's gone. It's, it's hopeless. You might as well go home. And so she's mindful of this whole custom. Now, there are some... Uh, you may read a commentator or a, uh, somewhere in Bible study notes or something that, that say that the book of Ruth is not strictly uh, a leveret marriage because uh, Boaz was not a brother of Malon and Chilion. And, and in a technical sense, that is correct. But there was a broader application here of a Jewish person helping those who were his relatives. If you look over at Leviticus chapter 25, we're going to look at two sections of Leviticus 25. First of all, verse 23. This is, re this is not only with regard to inheritance and a, a brother marrying a widow, but this is in regard to God's perspective of the land he gave to the people. And it's always referring to the land of Israel. The land, moreover, verse 23, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. 
you are but aliens and sojourners with me. You guys are just camping out on my land. You don't really own it. God retained the ownership. Thus, verse 24, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. What does he mean? Verse 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. The year of Jubilee was every seven sevens and then a year of celebration. So in that 50th year, uh, let, let's say that each of these sections of the auditorium is a different tribe of Israel, and you're in your land, 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 but, but somebody over there uh, runs into an economic crisis and sells 40 acres of land over to, uh, to uh, Joe uh, Jacksonstein in this section over here. And, and, and so... At, at the end of 50 years, Joe has to simply give that land back with no exchange of funds. He has had the use of it through the 50th year, and now it reverts to the same tribe in which it first belonged. God wanted the people to be able to maintain their possession in the land. They were tied to the land. It was part of the covenant. That's where the blessings were, in the land that God had given them. And so the, there's this careful way of preserving the rights of property Again, not ownership, but like a lease from God for each family. And, and in this passage, the nearest relative, verse 25, is the one who can step in and help buy his relative out of trouble. So let's say somebody over here, uh, let's say Thelma has sold that 40 acres to Joe Jacksonstein, and, uh, and then um, bro uh, Brother Jamie comes back from uh, being off in the service, and he finds out that uh, his relative Thelma has sold 40 acres, and he has the means, and he's the close relative, so he can go to Joe, and he say, Joe, uh, last year you paid for the next 29 years of lease on that land, because that's when the year of Jubilee is, so I'll pay you back for the next 28 years. You've had one year use of it, so that's, that's how the land would come back in. So then Jamie would, would buy the land back, but it's not Jamie's land. It's Thelma's land, because that's where it started out. And he would do that as an act of mercy and grace to help his kinsmen. And that is the background that we're looking at. So you have that in verses 23 through 28, and now verse 47, uh, later on in the uh, passage Now, if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. In other words, no one was sold into an, an everlasting slavery, an until-you-die slavery. There was always the option of a relative coming to buy you back out of that. God was protecting his people from abuse. 
Verse 48, then he shall have the right of redemption. Redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family. In other words, it, it starts with the closest relative, but as long as you have someone somewhere who's related, you still have hope. of being bought back out of your difficult circumstances. You've sold yourself as a servant to, uh, in this case, a foreigner, which is a picture of terrible destitution. So verse 50, he then with his purchases shall calculate from the year when he sold himself up to the year of Jubilee. And again, the sale corresponds to the number of years that are left. And, uh, and, and so this was one of the rules of the kinsman. He could, he could buy you out of slavery. He could buy your property back. He was a relative who would step in in order to help you out of a difficult situation. Now, there's a number of different people that have commented uh, in various places. You can look up the word redeemer or redemption or kinsman in a Bible dictionary. But there seems to be four basic truths about the Old Testament kinsman. First of all, he had to be kin. Got it? Kinsman redeemer. Got to be related. Which could take on a little bit broader perspective because if you didn't have a brother or an uncle or a cousin, it could be your second cousin twice removed. See? So, but it had to be somebody that was, was related to you. Secondly, the kinsman had to have the means of redemption. He had to have some cash. He had to have the means by which to buy you back. He had to have the ability. Fourth, or thirdly, the kinsman was not forced into this function. He did it for you as an act of mercy under the covenant, covenant mercy of God. God has bought them out of slavery. The least they're going to do is buy one another out of slavery. It was to be a demonstration of mercy. And the fourth thing is when there was the case of a widow and a name to be raised for a deceased person, there was also the person had to be willing to marry the widow and raise up a son. The, there were obviously times when someone had to be bought back when there wasn't the case of raising up a son. But in the book of Ruth, the two coincide. And so that is part of the background for this. So I want you to now go with me to the text of the book of Ruth, and let's look at a few things there tonight. And uh, we, have, we have not been going verse by verse. I, I don't know if that's been uh, troubling to anyone or disappointing to you, but we have just tried to give uh, some richness of background and, and a scope of the cultural and contextual variations from our own setting so that we can read it and, and learn. I had a very interesting experience this week with regard to the book of Ruth. I've been looking at... Uh, some computer software, Bible study, things that I have as we've gone through the book of Ruth. I think I've known since January that we were doing the book of Ruth. So it's been on my mind. I've been reading things, looking things up. I went upstairs to the GLB library a couple of different afternoons and sat there and read and read. And, and, um, and then this week, now that we're wrapping this up and down to the fourth chapter, I thought, well, you know, in my, I still have two filing cabinets in my garage. And yes, Steve, they're not here now. They're out of the way. I, they, we've been chasing those filing cabinets around. But I still have, well, you know, I entered the ministry B.C. 
before computers. And I have actual files. Not those little pictures on your desktop. I have files, like lots of them. So I thought, I probably have you know, something on the book of Ruth, probably. So I went out, pulled out the drawer, and sure enough, I had a, a whole file on the book of Ruth. It was probably half an inch thick. Oh, good. So I sat down to read it. I amazed myself. In there were the notes from my second year, first semester Hebrew class, when I translated the book of Ruth verse by verse. And did a grammatical analysis of every word in the book. I don't even remember it. <laughs> That's how crazy those days were when you're taking Greek and Hebrew and theology and some other things. And uh, it was, those were crazy days. I, I, I remembered one or two of the worksheets. I said, I remember that. And then I read through the grammar that I wrote down. I said, well, I'm glad I knew that stuff at one time. <laughs> you ever have, you, you know what I'm talking about, brother. So this is good stuff. <laughs> and so I was able to get some very helpful things out of that. But, but in one sense, it didn't help me at all because we've been trying to paint with a very broad brush as we've gone through the Book of Ruth instead of getting down into those details. I think the reason I didn't remember that I'd even translated the Book of Ruth is because we weren't looking at the theme, at the theology, at the picture, at the, the whole setting. We were going through, I mean, we were looking at verbs and nouns and clauses and prepositions and participles and, and all those things and tenses and, and, it, and it, it was a whole different kind of thing. So. All that being said, I hope this overview kind of a thing has been helpful to you. So with all that, look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. This is the word for covenant kindness, mercy, in verse 20. And Naomi mentions... In the end of the verse, then again, the man is our relative, our kinsman. He's one of our close relatives, whom Ruth just happened to meet, into whose field Ruth just happened to go, and glean on that first day when she went out to glean. And he was actually a, a relative of some note. He wasn't so distantly related that she didn't know it. That is Naomi. So at this point, it seems to dawn on Naomi that help is nearby. It seems to me that she's been so focused on her losses, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty. She's been so focused on her losses that she failed to focus on the possibilities and the opportunities that God could put before her. Why didn't she think of a close relative before this? I don't know. Maybe this has all been a whirlwind. It's happened so fast. Um, and, and perhaps as a result of this conversation, she begins to sense an obligation toward Ruth of thinking about arranging a marriage for Ruth so that she can be a help to Ruth. Now, in a technical sense, I think one of the reasons people say this is not a good example of a leveret marriage of the brother marrying the widow, etc., is because... In, in the ultimate sense, it would be Naomi who would be married to try to raise up a son, but evidently she doesn't have much hope of that, 
And so she's looking at Ruth, and she kind of passes the opportunity to the next generation. But it's still applying the same kind of a general principle. Whatever it was that transpired in her thinking, we notice that right away she begins to instruct uh, Ruth on how to go about staying near Boaz and in that field and under his protection and under his blessing. And then uh, she begins to instruct her in chapter 3 about how to go and propose marriage to Boaz. Um, Now, jump ahead just a second. You and I find out as we read this that Boaz says, well, there's somebody else that's more closely related than I am. And it comes to us as readers as a surprise. I'm not sure it came to Naomi as a surprise. I mean, she knows her family. She knows her relatives. Do you know whether somebody's your cousin or your third cousin? Your brother-in-law or or your brother-in-law three times removed? Your brother-in-law's sister-in-law's brother-in-law? So then why? That brings up the question, why would Naomi send Ruth to Boaz? Well, I think probably the character of Boaz is our answer. I think that Naomi, seeing the kindness and the mercy that Boaz is showing to Ruth, perhaps even knowing the character of Boaz prior to the 10 years ago when she left, I think she thought that Boaz would be a better choice for Ruth as a redeemer than the other person, whether it was because Boaz was wealthy and the other wasn't, because of Boaz's character and the other perhaps didn't have the same character, perhaps because she sensed that Boaz would be willing to help and the other might not, Whatever her choice was, whatever her thinking is, the wheels are turning. And, and uh, if you know any people from various ethnic groups that are looking at matching younger people, those are some pretty powerful gears driving those wheels when they're turning. And so Naomi is hatching a plan. And uh, the providence of God is at work. This is not just the hatching of a human plan, but God is at work. So let's look at chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Dear daughter, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you so that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say, I will do. And she did. As you can read further, she, that's what she did. She followed those instructions. So, okay, let's just say it. Some of this stuff sounds kind of strange. Different customs, different culture, different time in history, different uh, a lot of different things going on here. The reason she went in the evening is that because that is when they threshed, uh, that's when they winnowed the grain. Uh, we've talked about some of the farming techniques, and they would, they would uh, thresh the grain, which meant they knocked the grain off the straw. And then they would use forks or whatever to get the straw out of the way, and there would be these piles 
of grain, but all the chaff and all the broken little pieces of straw and everything would be there. And so they would either use wooden shovels or they would use baskets. And they would, in the evening when the breezes would come, during the hot heat of the day, there's no breeze, so you don't winnow the grain in the, in the daytime. You wait until the evening when the breezes are blowing and you scoop the grain up and you throw it up in the air and the grain is heavier and it falls down and the breeze blows the chaff and the pieces of straw off to the side and it gets down in your collar and in your clothes and in your hair and it itches like crazy and it's a nasty job but it's part of the process if you want to eat this is what you do and so there they are and and he has probably acres and acres and acres piles of grain that are being winnowed and processed and as the chaff is being driven away then you're left with a pile of grain but it's late in the evening. And so, in order to prevent theft, what do you do? You sleep on it. You sleep on the pile. I've taken a nap on a pile of grain, and it's not a bad way to sleep. It's like, a, like the old waterbed idea. You know, you just move around. It's like, it's like being in the sand at the beach. You just move around and get, get it all shaped just right, and you can doze right off. Very comfortable. And so that's what Boaz does. He's the owner. He's, in, he's protecting his, his harvest. And then there was a custom that we don't have a lot of information about, but, but in, the, in the Middle Eastern world, the idea of throwing a covering or a cloak uh, over a lady, over a, a marriageable lady, was a picture of wrapping protection around her, of taking her in your care. In fact, God said to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16, I, I passed by you and I saw you, and behold, you were of an age for marriage. So I spread my skirt over you and covered you. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. The Lord says, I took my cloak and I wrapped it around you and I brought you and made you my bride. And so when Ruth goes in after dark, not having other people see what she is doing, she wants this to be a private invitation proposal of marriage to Boaz, just for, between her and him. And so she comes in at night and, and lays at his feet and probably tugs on his cloak a little bit to get in there because at night it gets chilly. And he wakes up, he's already asleep. He's like most of us guys, you know, two minutes, we're on. He's asleep. She comes in, lays down at his feet as a symbol, asking, will you put your cloak over me and take me as your bride? And he wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes, you know, that there's somebody there. What? Who, who are you? He's, it's Ruth. And so we see this conversation then that envelops uh, as they start to talk in verse 9 and following. But before we go there, let's stop and think about something. In our culture, people get married because they fall in love, which is like falling off a cliff, only you start to fly. You've got to put that out of your head when you're thinking about biblical cultures. Uh, 
marriages were generally arranged. So oftentimes, the parents arranged a marriage with the agreement of the young person, knowing who the young person was interested in. Parents didn't just, let's go find somebody to make our daughter miserable. Let's find somebody, let's find anybody but the one that our son wants. And, you know, it, it wasn't like that. Uh, that's not to say they always necessarily would have picked the same person to be their spouse. But it was a culture in, in which you married someone and committed to love them. We could use a dose of that. You married someone and learned to love them. I've met couples from different parts of the world whose marriages were arranged, and they were very happy. I met a man and woman from India who never met until the day they got married. And we had an interesting discussion with them about the differences in their culture and ours. And they just said, you just know growing up that you're going to get married and you're going to learn to love somebody. So this is what is the, con this is the kind of context. Um, Naomi is helping choose a husband that she believes will be of good character and good help to Ruth as well. Perhaps, perhaps she has in mind the raising up of a son for the inheritance. She certainly has in mind Boaz coming to their rescue. Now, either Naomi has sold her fields, perhaps Elimelech and Naomi may have sold the fields, and this redeemer would buy them back into their use, or perhaps she is so destitute that she needs to sell the fields, and she, she wants to sell them to Boaz. It's a little hard to know exactly how this was going, but that the buying of the fields, uh, the financial obligation was always uh, often a part of it. Now, as this unfolds here before us in verses 9 and following, when he says, who are you? She answers, I am Ruth, your maid. She submits to him her service and her willingness to um, be at his uh, beck and call, in, and this is appropriate uh, Middle Eastern cultural uh, signification from a, a woman toward a man. So she says, spread your covering over your maid because you're next of kin, your close relative. So in just saying in those one little sentence, she tells it all. She brings into the picture the whole cultural sense, the whole law code of leveret marriage, the whole redemption need. You are the next of kin. And so she is putting herself to the situation where she is willing to be his bride. He's asking her, will you be willing to be our kinsman redeemer? And then he says, and I, this, we mentioned this last week, this is a picture of Boaz's character, and it's a picture of Ruth's character. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. Your first kindness was all of the things you've done for Naomi, coming home with her, coming and taking her God as your God, wanting to be with her people, making her people your people, working in my fields for your mother-in-law, helping her, taking care of her. Now you are even more kind because instead of looking for one of the young men of town, you come to me, evidently indicating he was a little bit older. We don't know how old. And so he commends her. He says, you are a blessing. 
in this regard. So do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. Can you imagine how those words fell on her ears? I will do whatever you ask. Here's a man who's willing He's willing to serve as the kinsman. He's willing to do whatever has to be done for the one who is in need. And then he says, and the reason he's so willing, he says, for all of my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. You are a woman of such character that it would be my privilege and honor to be married to you and take you into my family. I would be proud to have you as my wife. This is what he is saying to her. So she is obviously very delighted. Boaz is delighted because of her character, of what he has heard, and yet there are still some necessary legal steps that he has to take in order to be able to marry her. And uh, he mentions that in verse 12. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, I will redeem you as the Lord lives. So rest until morning, then get up and go. And I'll take care of the legal matter in the morning. And at this point, I think Boaz had a sleepless night because he's starting to hope that this other guy will not want to take Ruth as his wife. Now, am I stretching that, or do you think that might be the case? I don't think he fell right back to sleep. I think he's got something on his mind. Okay, i got to find this guy, and, 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 you know, and his wheels are going. Okay? So, um, before she leaves in the morning, he fills up her cloak with six measures of barley. So he gives her another 40 or 50 or 60 pounds of barley to carry home. And uh, if any of you have ever carried a sack of anything weighing 30 or 40 or 50 pounds, uh, you can kind of imagine what she's doing. So she gets home, reports it to the mother-in-law. Naomi in verse 18 says, Wait, my daughter, until you find out how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. That might be another reason why Naomi picked Boaz. She knew he would, not, uh, he, he would not shirk his duty. She knew he was a responsible man. He would respond. It would be timely. So now we go to the gate of the city. We don't have time to really paint the whole picture, but at the gate of the city is where legal matters would be taken care of. The elder men of the city would often be asked to stop and sit down and wait until they collected enough people to make a wise decision, to have a, a, a quorum, to have a legal group of ten witnesses, and so on. And then various kinds of property uh, transactions would take place, other kinds of business deals, marriages would be arranged, etc. The city gate was the place of business. So Boaz goes to the gate, waits until this other closer relative comes by, asks him to sit down. We've got some things to take care of. He gets ten witnesses to come and sit down. Meanwhile, people are coming and going. The town is busy for the day. The people are coming in for market, and uh, people are back and forth. It's getting noisy. But probably when Boaz started to speak, it got a little quieter because everybody wanted to know what was going on so they could gossip about it later on. And so Boaz then 
proceeds with these legal arrangements. So look at chapter 4. Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, behold the close relative whom Boaz spoke with was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders. In verse 2, they sat down. Verse 3, he says to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. By the way, I, I failed to mention, but in his reply back in verse 13, his reply to Naomi, he used the word redeem four times in one verse. He understands what's being talked about, okay? He understands it immediately. He's the one that starts using the word redeem, redeem, I will redeem. So Naomi is back. She has to sell a piece of land in verse 3. So verse 4, he says, to this other man, and I think the book of Ruth has been very kind to this man. It has not given us his name. The purpose of Ruth was not to smear a name. It was to glorify a name, the name of the Lord. And it, he didn't want it, the, the writer didn't want it to be a distraction for you and I to know that bad dude over there that didn't want to fulfill his obligation. No, he wants us to be focused on what God is doing through those that are willing to work and be used. So he informs the man, you can buy it in front of those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. Notice the use of the word redeem. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he says, I will redeem it. Hey, I'm good. I'm, I'm looking for more, more fields. I'll, I'll buy some property, sure. What's the price? What's the deal? Then Boaz says, oh, okay, by the way, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Oh, You see, a marriage was not always a part of the redemption. Sometimes it was simply a, a business transaction. Oh, but in this case, there is a marriage. The mention of the word Moabitess might have thrown him off. The mention of a marriage might have thrown him off. Perhaps he was a man who was already married. Uh, perhaps he was a man who was already married and had a son of his own, and he did not want to bring another son into the world to confuse his own inheritance. We don't know what the man's reasons were, but in verse 6, he declines the opportunity to redeem the land because of what it would do to his own inheritance. So he says to Boaz, you redeem it, you may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So, as was the custom... In former times in Israel, which we read back in Deuteronomy chapter 25, concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So whether this sandal thing by this time had developed into just being when, when there was a business deal, you swapped sandals, or, or, or you got somebody's sandals, I don't know, I, I got six pairs of sandals in my closet, and there's only, I got six right-handed, you know, six right-foot sandals, what a, I was like, i got to stop buying land. My feet are wearing out. <laughs> or whether this goes back to Deuteronomy 25 and the man was having to give up his sandal to show that he was not willing to redeem. So I don't know all that's involved there, but there's obviously a 
possibility. So he removes the sandal, and then Boaz makes this wonderful declaration in verse 9. Boaz says to the elders and all of the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the wife, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brother's or from the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. And all of the people are saying, we are witnesses. And then they pronounce a great Middle Eastern blessing, a Jewish blessing upon Boaz. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who had 12 kids between them, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve the wealth of Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. Well, that came true. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. And it did in fulfillment of God's covenant with his people. I will bring a king from the tribe of Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, verse 13. She became his wife. They had a son. And the women of the village, verse 14, say to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name, the name of the child who has just been born, become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. This one who's been born can take care of you as life goes on. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. For anybody in the Middle East to say that any woman was better than one son was an incredible compliment. To say that she was better than seven sons is the number of completion and perfection. That's an incredible statement for these women to make of commendation toward Ruth. So, if Naomi learned anything from this whole series of events. Hopefully by the end of the book, we're never told this, but hopefully if we had had a conversation with Naomi at the end of the book, she would have allowed her bitter spirit to be a praising spirit in recognizing the hand of the faithful God Jehovah in his steadfast mercy and love for her, even when she and Elimelech were not deserving of God's kindness. The women of the village were alert to God's providence They testified of God's hand dealing kindly with a struggling widow who was nearly destitute or in a destitute state. God sweetly brought her a daughter-in-law who was better than seven sons. God kindly provided her with the kinsman redeemer. And there's some things to think about with the kinsman redeemer. He had been there all along. Where was Boaz at the beginning of the story? He was a landowner farming in Israel, who didn't leave in the famine. He stays by the stuff and prospers and is not hardened by the famine, but is a man who displays kindness. And so he is kindly disposed toward Naomi and toward Ruth. And he was a man who was willing to give out of his wealth to help her in her place of need. There's no indication of any hesitation whatsoever. Ruth talks to him at night the next morning. He's down at the gate. Willingness to be the Redeemer. Look with me at one closing passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 43. 
And I know we're past the hour, so I'm trying to move quickly. Isaiah chapter 43, at the beginning. But now says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. He's talking about redeeming them out of Egypt, out of the slavery, out of the hopelessness they had in the past. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Just in case you didn't catch the first name, he gives you a couple more. And he goes on and he tells what he has done. And then verse 11, I, even I am the I am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. And so we see in the book of Ruth a picture of a Redeemer who is there, he is steady, he is steadfast, he is willing, he is wealthy, and out of his resources, he reaches out in mercy and helps a widow in her need, in her destitution, a widow who is hopeless, who is helpless, a stranger and a foreigner who has come into the land. And we have a picture here, I believe, of our Lord Jesus Christ in our sin debt, in our hopelessness, in our inability to pay any price of any kind, in our destitution before God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ turned the bitterness of our condition into the hope of our salvation. He paid a debt that we could never begin to pay, and he provides a way of life for us. He covers us with his cloak, and he gathers us into his family, and he takes us as what? His bride. His bride. And I'm not trying to spiritualize the book of Ruth. I'm just saying that the word redeemer is not used in the New Testament of our Savior for no reason at all. The whole context of the Old Testament paints the glorious picture of the redeemer so that we will understand what Christ has done for us. Praise God. Praise God for his providence. Praise God for his love. Let's pray.